Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and also to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership role yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then by all means, please visit leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. I'm delighted to say that joining me on today's programme is Ryan Housam, mentor, investor and CEO of the UK's market leading insurance specialist, Stayshore Group. Ryan is also a leader in fintech, as well as CEO of the Golf Legends Tour, an investor and mentor in businesses in other sectors, including Garçon Wines, which provide flat wine bottles for letterboxes, to Hollabob Tech for travel and tours, and various others. Uh, Ryan, very warm welcome to yourself today, and thank you so much for joining us on the programme. Real pleasure having you. Yeah, thank you, Scott. It's a pleasure to be here. Likewise, Ryan. Um, I think a good place to start on the show would be by going way back to the beginning of your career. You came from humble beginnings, growing up on a council estate in Sheffield, left school at the age of around 15 or 16, and then went on to launch your own business venture with your own capital. Did you know quite early on in life then that going into business yourself was going to be the way for you? Uh, yeah, no, no, not really. I mean, if I I actually left school at seventeen. I mm. had a, uh, I did uh, A levels, and then after a year, I got I got thrown out of those, and, and that was because at the time I wanted to be a professional golfer, so I was going to spend time, uh, or rather, I was spending most of my time uh, trying to be uh, get good at, at being a golfer, and uh, you know I had a, quite a low handicap. I could have gone down the assistant professional route at that time, uh, but I didn't. And you know, coming from a a background where my family weren't particularly well off, uh, couldn't afford lessons and stuff like that. So I went, uh, I started uh, selling double glazing door to door. That was my first foray into any type of business and sales. And that that was opening leads for what we would call a closer at that time. So that you would, you would knock on a door and bring a lead out and then somebody would go and close it on the day. And, uh, uh, and then I moved on from that to, uh, to closing, and I was still, I think, 17 when I did that, which is very young. Uh, and then I moved into uh, burglar alarms, and I think probably by the age I was uh, 19, I got about 100 people working uh, for me. I was the uh, Southern Sales Director. I'd moved down south from Sheffield at that point and, uh, uh, for, that, for that company. Uh, and then I started my first business when I was uh, 20. So... But, but you know, my, my my grounding really was quite a tough grounding in uh, in sales and direct sales and really tough direct sales, knocking on people's doors and taking money from people that had not thought about spending any money before you knocked on the door. So that mm. that was a real tough school, really. And in terms of how you run your businesses today, how would you describe your personal leadership style, if we call it that? Uh, well, I, I think it, it started off because I was brought up in in, uh, in a business sense in quite a tough way. I mean, I, I remember a funny story. My my first night out knocking on doors, uh, I uh, I was I think I think it was about twelve thirty. I was at a past midnight. Uh, I was uh, with another canvasser. 
and the the then manager came up and uh, gave me a bit of a hard time for still not knocking on doors. So you, you have to have quite a, a thick skin uh, to not pack in at that moment. And bear in mind, this was commission only. Mm. So, uh, so I suppose my starting uh, leadership style was one of, uh, I suppose, to a degree, quite uh, a little bit aggressive I suppose you could say uh, and uh, but over time you know I've, I've, I've moved on to I suppose uh, really get people on side and I, I think that's a big thing really you know you need to create a vision and get people excited about what you're doing mm. uh, and, and I suppose now it's it's a combination of uh, motivation uh, getting people excited about what what it is that we're doing and where we're going but there's also that that old school is still in there. It's been quite tough with people. Yeah. And I think to a degree that's almost needed as well, isn't it? And you talk about sort of your manager as well, being one that was quite hard on you back then. Um, are there any sort of individuals like him that maybe you've encountered throughout your career or any experiences that you might've had that you think have helped sort of mold you into that leader that you are now? Uh, well, I mean, in those early days, uh, you know, it was, it was like the OK Corral in sales in those days. So I wouldn't say there were any any people there that, that, that I really gained a lot from mm. uh, other than just learning how to be tough. I mean, a, a lot of the time people in those types of roles are are people that come from a type of background that, that I did uh, that, uh, that don't really have a great deal of education. I mean, my education was perhaps more than most, uh, but... Uh, so not not from those days, but later on, uh, I have a mentor uh, who who I've used uh, for quite some time. He's come into my life uh, actually in, in the last uh, five six years, uh, and he, he's been quite influential. A guy called Keith Cunningham, who's mm. uh, a, a chap in, uh, in in from Austin, who I met uh, at a conference. Who's a super smart older gentleman, uh, and. Uh, I did, you know, I did some stuff with Tony Robbins, who I found really interesting. Uh, so, yeah, that that was good from a, uh, you know, trying uh, understanding yourself and what it is that drives you. Uh, but I think if you're thinking about people that I would consider uh, to be uh, people that I really looked up to in the early days, it would be Branson. You know, I uh, I, I I really resonated with him, and I was mm-hmm. fortunate enough to. Travel uh, or cycle with him a couple of, or a few years ago across the Dolomites in Italy, and uh, to see his resilience uh, was quite something. So he was he was somebody that I looked up to. But I'm not saying he would be a mentor. And then moving on from that, uh, if you had if you had to say who do I think is somebody who uh, in the current environment uh, and world that we live in, who, who do I consider to be the most? Uh, the person that I would look at to most, I think it would be Elon Musk. Mm. I, I don't think there's anybody that's quite got what he's got uh, in the way in which he runs multiple enterprises uh, and, you know, is really shaping the world that we live in. And I think some of those figures that you've mentioned have 
shown that resilience, the word that you use there, throughout their careers. And you yourself as well have suffered several setbacks on your own business journey and overcome those, as well as, of course, beating a serious illness along the way. Um, is it important, therefore, that we see sort of failure and setbacks, if we call it failure, as not a terminal thing, but rather sort of a temporary glitch, and we sort of use that to learn? Yeah, well, I, I, I absolutely agree with that. I mean, one of Tony Robbins' lines is adversity makes you stronger, uh, and I believe it does. And, uh, you know, a lot of people, uh, you know, give in quite early on. I mean, if you're going to be an entrepreneur or run a business, you've got to be able to deal with adversity. You've got to be able to, uh, you know, take those knocks and get up and go again. I mean, from my perspective, the uh, the thing that was difficult for me, I was always very good at getting a business going. Uh, but like many an entrepreneur, uh, I'd see a shiny new thing, you know, if I would go and, and turn my hand to it. Uh, and, uh, you know, well, I, I really got this lesson uh, after I'd, I'd, I mean, I've had a number of businesses and I've you know, an awful lot of businesses over time and I've done very well with, with them and always earned decent money and then inadvertently or invariably lost them uh, through for one reason or another. So I learned an awful lot with that. But the biggest thing uh, was that my ability to focus was really, really poor. And I was uh, nominated to be entrepreneur. Uh, I was a young entrepreneur of the year. And uh, the thing that I noticed at that time uh, when I met these other entrepreneurs who I, uh, you know, they were, they were all pretty smart, but I, I didn't see anything that was special in comparison to what I had. But the one thing that most of them had that I recognized was that they got their one business and they'd stayed focused and they'd mastered it and, and and ultimately done pretty well out of it. And it was at that point that I recognized I really needed to stay super focused on what I was doing. Mm. And that's, you know, that's when I really uh, built Stayshore out and for quite some time didn't try and do anything else. Do you think that we can really be successful without having setbacks along the way then? Do you think it's something that has to happen for us to learn and then improve ourselves? That's an interesting one, that, isn't it? I mean, I wouldn't like to go through some of the things that I've gone through mm. uh, again. Uh, so I don't think I'd wish them on on, any, on, on people. Yes, it's quite, you know, some of the some of the stuff that I've had to go through as, as many entrepreneurs have is quite tough and you know you talk about an illness that's probably the, the you know the the hardest end of it but uh, but ultimately I, I genuinely do believe that that if you have a mindset of uh, being able to take a setback and and push on from it and learn from it and you know in a business sense not let it happen again. I mean, you know, making the same mistake twice is not very smart. So, mm. uh, so yeah, I, 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 I don't. So, so I don't. I don't think it has to be that you uh, you have to have setbacks to succeed. Many people have succeeded uh, quickly with their first business and gone on and pretty well, and you know, but others haven't. So, I think it's it's both ways. I mean, if, if I had a choice, I. I I would not have the setbacks, but the setbacks of what are what has made me now. Mm. But ultimately, uh, I think I, you know, if I'd have learned, if I'd have had some of the knowledge, I, think, I don't think it's just about setbacks; it's about knowledge as well. And 
if I, if I, if I think, you know, you asked me a question about mentors, I was of the view that I could do everything myself uh, and didn't really turn to anybody. And to a degree, I was reinventing the wheel. And I, I'm not sure that's clever, really. Well, it's not very clever. You know, why would you do that? Uh, so learning, you know, from where others have been and what they've done. And if it's a business that you're in, understanding, you know, who is in that, who is in that business and who's done better than you and how have they done it, you know, it's pretty obvious if you think about it, that very few people actually go and research things out and do what they would have done. Mm. So I was always a bit seat of the pants and I just got on and did things without properly dissecting and looking at where I was going. And I think one of the best things you can do is actually reach out to other business leaders, especially as a young entrepreneur and really seek to learn from them and network, isn't it? And I understand that from your sort of own experiences of facing setbacks and overcoming them, you're actually harnessing that and using it to help others through an initiative called the 90 Days app at the moment. Um, without sort of giving yeah. too much away for those that haven't maybe come across that or used it yet, what sort of helpful tips briefly does that sort of provide, do you think? Yeah, well, actually, I'm happy to give it away. It's, okay. it's not uh, it, it, it's, it's not rocket science, and this is something that I got from... It was a combination, actually, of Keith Cunningham and, uh, and Tony Robbins. So Tony Robbins has, uh, uh, has something where it, it's, it's basically focusing on uh, things that make a difference, and he would have a system around uh, how you spend your time and what you do. And Keith Cunningham had a, had a process which he operated every 90 days. And in that 90 days, he would focus on the most important thing that you could get done. And in this case, it's in, let's call it in business. Uh, and, and then on the back of that, you focus on the most important thing every 90 days. And then if you take the stacking effect of that, then, uh, then that's very powerful. When I, you know, when I first got involved with him, I was, I was, uh, I got, I suppose to a degree, I'd gone back to where, you know, their show was pretty successful and we were building out multiple products, but actually not getting the traction that I wanted in some of these other areas. Uh, so, you know, with him, I, I decided we had something called underlying profit, which is basically, uh, I suppose you could call it an EBITDA stripped out. So it was, it was, you know, money that we would have made if we hadn't done all this other stuff. And I, and I was, you know, with, with his uh, mentorship, I looked at it and I thought, why am I, why aren't I just going and getting the money that's there instead of this fictitious money that's not really there? So, that, you know, that was a that was my first foray into it. And over a couple of years, I, I, quad, I tripled profit uh, just by doing that and then get the money. And then I went on and did some of the other things that I wanted. So, so the way the 90-day thing works is I've taken a version of what Tony Robbins did. I've taken a version of what Keith Cunningham did. And then in the marketplace, there's something called OKRs, which is objectives mm. and key results. And uh, this was uh, a system that I think was brought through from a guy called John Doerr and put into uh, Google and so on. Uh, and what I've done is I've, I've taken uh, that framework. So objectives being what's the most important thing that you can get done. Key results being things that measure against those objectives. And then the most important thing, which everybody has missed, not most important, but 
something that drives it every day, our tasks, because we all spend time every day doing lots of stuff. But are we doing things that make a difference? So, you know, what, what, what this system does is it allows you to create a vision uh, to then work on the objectives, what's the most important stuff for that 90 days, and that would be one, two, three things, the key results that measure it, and then every day the task that you're doing to drive those key results that get you to the objectives. And it's a, it's a, it's a system, a software system, that allows uh, business owners, entrepreneurs to, uh, uh, to manage their business that way. There's one of the things that I found was that I was sort of doing this on paper, but it's quite difficult when you get to a certain scale to know what everybody's doing all the time. The way the software works is it gives you the ability to see at every level in the business who's, what objectives people have, how they fit into the overall vision, and then how they're performing against those objectives. And it's got true transparency up and down the chain. So people lower down the organization can see and people higher up. So, you know, big organizations, you know, I mean, we've got you know, a thousand people. So people in our organization, it, it can work, but it can also work in a very small way. And, you know, I, I use this system not just for business. I use it across all areas of my life and I split it up into, uh, into then a vision for each area of the life. So whether that's health, fitness, uh, golf, which is a big thing for me, uh, business, a different business unit, spirituality, whatever it is, what does brilliant look like? What's the vision? And then what are, you know, what's the, uh, what's the main objective that's going to drive me towards that vision in that area? And, and then just relentless focus on the things that matter. Mm. And it sounds simple, but keeping on top of it is not simple. And that's what this platform does. Mm. And when we talk about sort of having that vision and really making a difference through your own insurance companies, you've actually changed the perspective of the sector on what's possible for generations of people traveling all over the world. And that's included yeah. moving parameters to ensure that individuals over the age of 50 are able to travel at any age and irrespective of any existing health conditions. And that in itself is a huge achievement. But since the outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic, Stacia was also the first to market with travel insurance as well for COVID cover. And um, that takes us nicely on to sort of the here and now and the context in which we're having this discussion, which is we're still somewhat within the global pandemic, even though restrictions in England have gone for the time being. And thinking of sort of the last 16 months at large, Ryan, how has it affected you and affected your business as a whole, would you say? Uh, well, it's, it's, it's interesting uh, that, you know, being in a, I mean, this is, uh, first of all, it's taken a a step back and think about any business managing risk is one of the key things that you've got to do in business and it's something that took me a long time to learn uh, so uh, understanding how bad this could be when it came out or when we first heard about it which was you know pre all the lockdowns and so on we started to move quite fast and knowing that this was a significant risk uh, so you know there was some planning that was done pre uh the actual restrictions come into place, which helps. And there's pre-planning that would have been done. Uh, but I think it, a lot of it comes down to mindset. I mean, my business is a little bit different to other travel insurance intermediaries in the place, having that we, you know, we control pricing and, and have underwriting profits and so on. Uh, so that's that gives us a little bit of a, an advantage. And as you said earlier, you know, we 
we were the first ones to put medical conditions front and centre of travel and, and to change the industry in that way. Uh, but that's, you know, that's, I suppose, thinking differently about something and going after a space that others don't own. And when, we, when it comes to, it came to this, uh, I, I remember listening to a podcast with, I think it was Insurance Age and some other uh, travel industry uh, leaders. And uh, they were sort of saying at that time that, that, you know, there's going to be no travel insurance sales until I think July or August, as it was at that time. Uh, and, you know, I mean, I have a view with marketing, which is actually very different. Uh, so, you know, everybody tended to pull their marketing away. And, and whilst I, I pulled some marketing, I kept all on demand in place. And in the period of lockdown, uh, the early lockdowns, uh, we took substantial market share because there were still people looking for travel insurance. Uh, and I was of the view, why would you not be there when people are searching for something? So uh, so that was one of the first things that we do was to keep things there. And then how do we innovate uh, and be ahead of the game? And there we came up with 15 months for the price of 12. Uh, we were the first to bring out COVID cover. Uh, when they uh, then said that you couldn't travel to countries, we, you know, I challenged the FCDO advice and became the first to uh, allow people to travel against FCDO advice. Uh, so I had to change the insurance policy to do that. And, you know, we were just groundbreaking uh, with each one of these areas, which kept us ahead of the game. Uh, and meant that in 2020 we actually made uh, a profit, which is highly unusual in my sector. Mm. So I think you know what that tells you is there's always a way uh, to do something slightly different to the norm, but you've just got to think a little bit different uh, and and not follow the crowd really. Uh, but then in addition to that, uh, we've you know re-engineered tech systems. We're you know we're moving into fintech areas in a big way. Uh, so you know we, we've we've looked at uh, how do we streamline. So we've had a whole efficiency uh, thing going in place, and then you know the other thing that we have done uh, is that uh, during this period uh, we've also launched another business uh, in insurance called PetSure, which is basically uh, pet insurance, but aiming at pets with medical conditions are taking what we're good at doing and put it into that area but done it under under a new brand and that's just as a you know as, I suppose as protection in case this thing carries on for an awful lot longer uh, uh, but you know so we've done that and then the other thing that we've done in this period uh, we were good at B2B but I wouldn't say we were brilliant uh, there was a company called Rock that got some big contracts with the likes of Tesco and mm -hmm. uh uh, Metro Bank and and Jet Two and so on and we we uh, acquired them in this actually we finished that acquisition about uh, a month ago uh, so you know we've bolstered where we were at uh, ready for this comeback and in, and now it's uh, it's really starting to kick off again so I suppose that gives you some uh, mm. you know some idea as to what we've done perhaps very few other companies in our uh, in our business have done anything like that. And given that the pandemic as well has really sort of heightened our own awareness of things like mental health and general well-being, um, how important are these factors within leadership in business, both in terms of looking after your own, but also that of your colleagues around you as well? 
Yeah, I, I think it's incredibly important. I mean, we've got a you know fantastic HR department that are you know all over this type of stuff, but especially uh, you know now working from home. I mean, we've really uh, changed our model. I mean, we have uh, call centres uh, and we weren't home working, so you know we had to very quickly uh, get home working systems in place, uh, which we've now. Well, which we did obviously very fast, and we've now come up with a, a real hybrid way of working, uh, but with you know call centre agents predominantly working from home. Uh, but obviously, the challenge of that is the isolation, uh, and uh, so I think you know companies have got to uh, really uh, look at uh, well-being and and and, uh, and engagement. Uh, to make sure that you know that that, that that people don't feel isolated and and that the problems that they're facing, especially during the pandemic, uh, so not just from home working, but uh, you know, I suppose it, this point is a little bit difficult for me because I'm quite a positive person, so mm. very little uh, you know, things don't get to me in in that sense. But you know, some people, uh, and I understand this, would. You know, we'll be struggling with the thoughts of what the future holds, and and so on. And uh, and in that in that sense, as a as a business leader and owner, I, I think you've got to be there for your employees. And I think sort of sticking on topic a bit, um, we have become very aware of our own sort of mortality during this time as well. And we've seen a real drive towards sort of healthier lifestyles and healthier work life balance as a result of that. And that's something that you've sort of been ahead of the game with. You've been promoting that for a very long time. And indeed, sticking to that healthy lifestyle has really sort of helped you in your own life and within business, hasn't it? Yeah, it has. I mean, I mean, look, it started uh, really. I mean, I, I consider myself to be really healthy uh, and very sporty and, you know, doing lots of stuff. But uh, I got a, uh, a cancer back in 2014 called lymphoma, which is a blood cancer. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was quite a serious one, and uh, uh, and on the back of that, I you know decided to really look into uh, not just fitness but health and what you put into your body, what you put into your body, and and how powerful your mind is uh, around helping you you know, control things. You know, stress you know can have a big impact on uh, on things like cancer, for example. Mm. But, you know, stuff like stuff like sugar, and you know, I have what we call an alkaline, a predominantly an alkaline diet, uh, which is basically uh, natural foods that you're putting into your body, nothing really processed, very very little uh, uh, dairy and meat and stuff like that. Uh, so there's there's that side, but then there's also, you know, I do a cold plunge in the morning, which is uh, very good for your body. And then I just do something called priming, which I got from Tony Robbins, which is a form of meditation that's setting yourself up for the day in a really positive way. And I'm a really big believer in all of this stuff. But I think it, it you know, it, it really, I mean, I've always been super positive, but, but I'm not sure I fully understood uh, my body and, and uh, or the body, should I say, and the, Obviously, in my case, my body, and uh, what you know, what really works uh, for it, and I didn't really know, and, and uh, so you know, I went to school on on uh, really understanding uh, what could cause a cancer and uh, how to prevent it in the future. And when it comes to sort of your own mental health, are there any sort of techniques that you use to sort of switch off as and when you need to? You spoke, of course, about priming and meditating, but are there perhaps any other similar ones? 
Yeah, uh, well, you know, I, I, I talked earlier about my, you know, my golfing ambitions. You know, maybe mm. I wasn't good enough as a younger person, really. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to be involved in golf now in quite a big way uh, 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 with the ownership of uh, the what was the senior tour. Uh, but for me, playing golf is a real way of switching off. I mean, I don't think about anything else whilst I'm whilst I'm playing golf. Uh, so you know, that's a form of meditation. I think you'll find that with, with a lot of sport, actually, you know, uh, but so, so for me, that, that's, that's one thing, uh, but I'm, I'm also not a, you know, some people, uh, uh, you know, they're up at seven o'clock and they're working till nine at night and they're really grafting. I'm not that type of person. You know, I'm, I'm more about, uh, I mean, I, what, I'm, I, I'm a believer, actually, that it's not about the hours that you put in; it's about what you get done in the hours. So, uh, I, I, I do spend quite a lot of time. I might be thinking about things, but I'm not full on with work. Mm. Uh, but obviously, I'm fortunate enough to do that. So, I think, you know, I've, I've, some people don't agree with that with, with balance, uh, but I think it's quite important. So, you know, uh, taking time out from from work to live. I'll do the things that you want to do and enjoy your life doing the things that are important to you and in my case that might be travelling or golf or spending time with my family whatever it is yeah, absolutely. And I remember something uh, that um, I think James Kluski, um, Richard Branson's tennis coach, actually told me about him, something very similar. He actually, when he plays tennis, just switches off and doesn't even take his mobile phone with him because he wants to be present. He wants to sort of shut off from the wider world and have that time for himself. And I think that is so, yeah. so beneficial, as you say. Absolutely right. Um, thinking about sort of how the COVID pandemic has sort of reshaped the world of business, though, um, over the last 16 months, do you expect some features of the lockdown period, such as maybe remote working, for instance, to remain part and parcel of how we do business in this country and in the wider world, even when COVID is eventually long gone? Uh, I, I, I do. I know that in uh, our circumstances, our circumstance, we've, you know, we've adopted a, a hybrid way of working and uh, there's no compulsory need to come into the office. Uh, and, and obviously, we're one of many now. I mean, some some banks, for example, I think Goldman Sachs are like, no, you've got to be back in the office. But uh, I think that most companies are adopting a, a hybrid way of working. And I think that you know this pandemic is going to revolutionise over time. You know how people work. I think what we've all realised is that we can work from home. And I think also maybe more be more productive. You know, if you can put the right mm. systems around people, you can be more productive because you've not got the traveling time and so on. Uh, but obviously, you've then got the isolation, and that's where, you know, a hybrid way of working. So, you know, we have like a center of excellence for uh, our uh, employees for uh, in the call center, for example. So they can come in there, uh, or if they want to work from the office, we've got the ability, you know, got plenty of seats there to allow them to work from the office. So, but they can pick and choose how they feel as, as the systems allow them to do that. Uh, I still think, though, that management do need time together. It's okay, you know, r- running things as a, you know, as a leadership team, constantly on Zoom. It, it works, but, but I still think that, you know, there is a need to be together uh, to really have that camaraderie and, and to make the decisions that you need to make in a way that you can't really do on Zoom. So mm. I, 
I don't think it's going to go completely the other way, i.e. everybody's home working and that, that's it. I think there's going to be a hybrid and, and companies will find what works for them. Yeah, I think that's very right. I think especially in some of the creative industries, you do need people together in a room brainstorming ideas. And I think it's also important from the well-being perspective to have that sort of social interaction as well, for sure. Um, a very topical issue in the news right now at the moment as well, Ryan, of course, is the idea of vaccine passports, which could affect not just the future of travel, but also some of the simple things we can do in our own towns and cities, such as going to our favourite restaurants and hospitality venues. As a specialist in the travel insurance industry yourself, what are your sort of personal thoughts on that? Uh, They're split, actually. I'm a a believer uh, in personal and freedom and choice. And it's, you know, it's interesting. When I, I... on a personal note, uh, I wasn't sure whether to get the vaccine, for example. Uh, so given everything that I've learned about the body, putting something alien into my body that it's then going to deal with goes against all the principles that, I, uh, uh, that I've sort of learned uh, since being ill. Uh, but, I, I, you know, I, I took a decision that uh, to have the vaccine on the back of what's more likely to kill me, COVID, uh, or the vaccine. So... Uh, you know, so that was a that was a personal decision, uh, which I, I've done, and uh, who knows it, whether it's right or wrong with all this conspiracy stuff that's going on. But mm. uh, on, on the other note, you know, my daughter, uh, she hasn't had the vaccine, uh, probably doesn't want the vaccine. Her mother doesn't want the vaccine. But my daughter was saying how now she can't go into nightclubs. She's just been on hold and she couldn't go to some places without this passport. So it, it, it feels to me that uh, that's not the way we should be operating as a society, and I don't like it. Uh, but from a point of view of travel and it getting travel going from a business perspective, it's 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 better for me, I suppose that. You know that we're allowing people who are vaccinated to have more freedom than those that aren't. So you know it's, it's difficult to wear two hats. Uh, mm. So, uh, but I, but I, I'm not a believer in, in uh, prescriptively telling people what they can and can't do uh, in their lives. I think it's a bad place to be. I think domestically, certainly, it's very problematic, isn't it, compared to within the travel industry? Because I suppose we've been used to when you've had to travel to places like South America and Africa before. Now you've had to have had certain vaccines like malaria jabs, things like that, to be able to travel. So it does sort of make more sense in the travel sector. But yeah, domestically, I think, yeah, certainly a bit more of a problem. And thinking about yeah. the sort of travel sector moving forward, there's always been that concern about what consumer confidence is going to be like, even with restrictions now gone in England. So sort of more broadly, yeah. what sort of ongoing support is the industry going to need from government to sort of truly recover? And what sort of future can the sector expect maybe in the next couple of years, do you think? Yeah, well, well I've, I've been quite vocal in the media uh, about the, inability of the government to deliver uh, a cohesive message. Mm. Uh, so I, I think that they've been, they've been very good at rolling out the vaccine, but they've been very, very good poor with their communications. So I think, I think the, the most important thing is very clear communication and not flip-flopping from one thing 
up to the next. I mean, some of the decisions really don't make a great deal of sense. So I think the the most important thing is that we've you know we've got a mandate to allow people to travel who have been vaccinated. Uh, definitely, uh, for those unvaccinated, they should still be allowed to travel if if they've got it with a testing regime. Uh, but as you can see now, countries are stopping pe- some people travelling if they haven't got if they haven't got uh, if they haven't been double vaccinated. So, uh, so I, I I I think that's you know that's one thing really opening up. Uh, the, the other thing which has been very very difficult for the travel industry is you know you had an awful lot of customers that have wanted have needed customer service because they've not known what to do. And the problem with that is that travel companies have had to have people on hand for customer service, which doesn't bring any income in, uh, which also meant that they couldn't furlough them. So I think that, that the there should have been some specialist support around travel companies uh, for that because that didn't really happen. It was a binary, they were furloughed or not furloughed. Uh, but, you know, you can either not support your customers, which is obviously not good for your business or brand, or you pay to support your customers, but you have no income. So it, it, it's a very, very difficult one. That. So I, I think there should be some more targeted uh, help for travel companies, although obviously it's now coming to an end. But from a po- positive perspective, you know, we've seen uh, numbers dramatically pick up mm. in uh, in the last few weeks. So uh, to answer your earlier question, whether it was a question or more of a statement around you know, is there a confidence level happening? I think there absolutely is a confidence level that's out there. People want to travel, they love to travel and, mm. and you know, I believe they're going to get out there. Yeah, hopefully so. And um, it is a little bit of an uncertain period over this sort of next few months as we sort of gauge what the trajectory of the pandemic is likely to be. Um, But as we sort of move into sort of the late summer and then into the autumn and the winter and we look ahead to the next calendar year, what are some of your own ambitions, Ryan, during this time? And what are you sort of hoping to achieve with your businesses, would you say? Yeah, well, uh, we've sort of recognised what, what it is that we're about because uh, you know we're, we're a collection of businesses we're a group and we've got multiple businesses that we own within the group so we've come up with a uh, something that that makes sense to us uh, uh, as, as, a, as a sort of an internal vision uh, and uh, and that's you know basically rolling out uh, these businesses uh, I suppose across the globe so you know, we're looking to do what we've done and build them out internationally uh, in the various areas that they operate. Uh, but we're doing that more with technology than we are with people. So it's, I, I suppose it's, it's, it's two things. It's building out on the strength that we've got globally and then in addition to that, using technology in a way uh, that's making us more of a fintech operation. Yeah, it's certainly going to be an interesting time ahead, isn't it? And I would actually relish the opportunity, Ryan, to maybe catch up with you at some point in this next year and see how sort of that vision is panning out because I've really enjoyed having you on the podcast. And it's a shame that we're just about out of time now, actually, because I could literally speak to you all day. It's been really, really insightful and thoroughly enjoyed the discussion. Yeah, well, it's been great talking to you and happy to catch up again. Would be wonderful, Ryan. And lastly, just before we do depart as well, please do continue to take care and stay safe with everything that's still going on as well, because we're not quite out of the situation yet. But no, no, I, I know we're not. <laughs> yeah, hopefully, right. better days are ahead of us for sure. 
Yeah, thank you, Scott. It was a pleasure welcoming Ryan Howsam, mentor, investor and CEO of Stayshore Group onto today's podcast. And I do hope that you all thoroughly enjoyed a compelling interview. Uh, coming up next on the programme, we'll be joined by the Leaders' Council Chairman and former Education Secretary, Law Blunkett, who will be sharing his take on the events of the last 16 months with the COVID situation, as well as his hopes for this period ahead of us, when hopefully we will be in some form of economic recovery. That will be coming up on the programme shortly. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage obviously take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the, the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to. But we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up 
inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically, locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself and there's been ups and downs but all the way through the public and private sector people have to use the jargon stepped up and they've shown uh, local regional national level the kind of leadership that britain historically was very good at regrettably we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's a had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, 
they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the the UK and um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because 
Mm-hmm. My experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated, Mm -hmm. scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real, on the back of that. It was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging, I, I think it would. people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown, these kind of things you you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations? that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will 
make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of 
low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. So Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent, a professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond 
Labour members that has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas with confidence with the ability to pull teams around them above all to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it what's the one king uh, key thing that secure needs to do to restore labor as an election winning party i think secure starmer's major challenge is to convince Skeptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, Do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, He has the forensic uh, mindset 
and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. <laughs> thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.